This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey guys, what's up? Kevin Jones, founder of Blue Wire. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Do me a favor, send it to one of your friends. We're growing this network, grassroots style. It takes everyone. You're a part of our team if you send this to one of your friends. All right, enjoy this podcast and appreciate your support. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you this time without my co-host, Andy Bailey. We are, however, pleased to be joined by Indy Corn Roses' Caitlin Cooper today. We're going to do a deep dive onto the Indiana Pacers as they gear up for what's going to be a critical offseason for them. Just a few housekeeping notes before we get to Caitlin, though. As you can tell, we are starting to roll out our exit interviews slash long-term outlooks for teams that have wrapped up their season. We will tackle lottery squads in no particular order as we see fit, and we'll get to playoff teams as they are eliminated. We really do like to take these deeper dives into individual teams just to give our listeners an idea of what's going to happen this offseason and just to provide a a more macro view of the entire league. So uh, we will be talking about league-wide stuff throughout this as well. That coverage will not change, but we're just hoping that you enjoy these exit interviews slash dives into long-term outlooks. If you have any feedback for how they're structured, um, if you have any comments, if you have any guests specifically that you'd like to see on for your team, uh, hit us on Twitter. You can follow Hardwood Knox at Hardwood Knox. I am at Dan Favalli, D-A-N-F-A-V-A-L-E. You can follow Andy at Andrew D. Bailey. Again, we appreciate any thoughts on this. It's the first year we're really trying to get to every team right after the season. We've done those preseason previews before. Any reviews will help. And with all that out of the way as well, I just want to remind, implore, beg, plead with everyone to continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. We can also be found wherever else you're getting your podcast. But iTunes is the best way to let us know that you are out there, that you are listening. Please take the 10 to 15 seconds out of your day. Type in Hardwood Knox on iTunes. Throw us that five-star rating. If you have a review and comments, please leave them. We are open to feedback or suggestions or, or just general comments. We, we want to hear it all. And if you have not subscribed yet, please do so now. This is a perfect time to do that since we are going to try and get into the nuts and bolts of every team as they prepare for this offseason while still delivering you playoff coverage and all our other normal topics that we like to discuss. So once more, I on iTunes, search Hardwood Knox, throw us that rating, we'd really appreciate it. And with all that out of the way, I will now get to our guest, Caitlin Cooper from Indy Cornrows. 
Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox podcast. As we continue to keep our team exit interview trains rolling, I am excited to be joined once again by Caitlin Cooper of Indie Cornrows. Uh, if you are not following her on Twitter, you absolutely need to remedy that immediately. She is at C2 underscore Cooper, at C2 underscore Cooper, one of the best Pacers riders in the business, one of the best basketball minds, period. And we're, we're going to go deep, deep into the Indiana Pacers today. So I do have to start off with this question, though. How are you faring uh, since the end of the Pacers postseason, Caitlin? It, like I said, it's 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 been kind of rough. Like <laughs> the playoffs are kind of rough whenever you're trying to turn around. Like some of the pieces I wrote about, whether it's the Turner Sabonis lineups or really digging into possessions, like just trying to churn that out by the next morning so that people have the content. Like I'm just I'm prepared, and it was kind of nice because the Pacers didn't do exit interview stuff yet this week. They're doing it next week, so I've just kind of chilled a little bit. I wonder what the thought process is behind that, because I actually appreciate it too, but it's like, I think the Nets are a good example. It's just, they were eliminated and then bing, you know, two days later, their exit interviews just happened. Right. And I think that's what the Pacers did last year. Like if I remember right, they lost that game seven to the Cavs on a Sunday and then it was either like Monday or Tuesday. They were doing postseason presser stuff, but this week they, nothing. So. Well, you deserve some kind of a break because I said to you before we started recording that for the people who get like really into the nitty gritty of the basketball uh, X's and O's. I don't know how you just don't burn out in the middle of the season doing those possession by possession, possession by possession breakdowns, and then, like you said, having to turn it around in the postseason. To me, that that type of content, which to me is just hard to produce. Maybe it comes easier to other people, but that that's impressive to me. But I would be. I don't know how you don't burn out midseason. Right. And you know, when you're doing the same team too, you like, I don't want to like, oh, well this, this problem's still happening, but I don't really want to point it out again. Like people have heard enough from me about that. Like the Turner Sabonis thing, I'd actually promised myself, like, I'm not going to write another piece about this this year until something changes. And then the playoffs happen. And I was like, oh crap. Now I definitely have to write about that again. So especially with what transpired at the end of game four against Boston, where it was, or was that game? Yeah, that was game four where it was. They closed with Sabonis and Turner inexplicably didn't have Evans on the court. Is that, that, that was that was game three. Game yeah. Three. Yeah. They have no shot creator. They pull Tyreek to put in Turner and Sabonis. I mean, and then in game four, they did end up closing with Tyreek, which was kind of interesting because they had said that Tyreek needed a breather at the end of game three because he wasn't really used to playing that extended minutes. But then they found a way to finagle that in game four. So it's like, clearly it was possible to do it. But Miles and Sabonis with Tyreek, it's like you almost needed to play both of them if he was going to be on the floor because his chemistry with Sabonis playing downhill is a lot better than his chemistry playing more east-west with Miles, but you didn't want to lose Miles' defense. So that, that was kind of the conundrum they had in that series about what what types of people they needed to have on the floor based on how Boston was defending them. But. That's the the Turner Sabonis thing, and I, I when I was sending you the list of like topics for today, I was wanted to kill myself too for asking about the Sabonis <laughs> stuff again today. But that's one of like this is every team goes into the off season and says it's super pivotal. But you look at um, having extended Turner Sabonis is extension eligible on top of all their free agents. And there's this call for them to make a splash in free agency, but are they going to be able to poach one of the bigger names? And it's not like their own free agents are throwaway guys. You look at how important Bojan Bogdanovich was to them, Thaddeus Young, uh, even Corey Joseph's defense. And so going into this summer with, I think it's probably just most important to start here is with the free agents. Who do you consider 
like must have keepers uh, for this team. And or if it's I don't know if it's so easy as well. It's basically Thad and, and Bogdanovich. Who do you consider more integral to the team between those two? Right. So yeah, let's just look at like Thad and Bogey. And I think when I looked at your outline, you had it like framed, who's the greater flight risk? And that that's kind of a loaded question. It's kind of interesting because like just on their, if you're looking at their individual preferences, like I know that Bogdanovich told um, the Indy star that he doesn't really like to change teams. And he seemed fairly favorable to wanting to come back. He liked the Pacers organization. And then Thad's a little bit more interesting because he kind of likes to take a little bit of time and consider his options. But last year when he had his player option, I remember there he like tweeted something out along the lines of like, I think it was somebody's like, oh, Pacers, give Thad a new contract or something. And he replied with like, you know, he wanted a long-term deal and more years in a place that he likes. So I'm kind of interested to see like, is he going to be looking for a more long-term contract and if he is is does that really line up with what the Pacers are looking at because if you just look at their two games comparatively they're both 30 years old but I think that Bogdanovich's game is going to age a little better than Thad just because most of like the utility that Thad brings is so much about being a mobile defender and being able to guard you know two three positions and what he does is an anticipatory defender in the gaps and like how is that going to age over a multi-year contract like i I'd be a little iffy about that. And then just from the organizational side, like I know that Zach Lowe reported around the trade deadline that the Pacers had some interest in Chris Middleton, which I think is a long shot. I'm not really sure the Bucks are going to want to let go of him, but that kind of communicates to me. And then within the same article, I think he also said that they'd like to re-sign Bogdanovich, but just reading some tea leaves, it kind of seemed like even going back to last year that maybe they would have been willing to go in a different direction from Thad. I mean, Kevin Pritchard directly said in the postseason presser, like he made comments about wanting a quote unquote real stretch four which Thad doesn't exactly fit the bill. So like, if you were just going to pick one or the other, I think I would prioritize Bogdanovich. But my guess is that the market's also going to be stronger for him than it's going to be for Thad. Like, I think they're going to potentially face some pricey offers from rival teams. So we'll see. Yeah, he seems like he might end up being one of the few top consolation prizes for squads that get jilted by you know right. their A-listers. And it's someone who just pumped in over 20 points per 36 minutes um, on a 57.5 effective field goal percentage. That's I think that's definitely going to draw more interest. And then with Thad, too, still underrated for all he does defensively. And while he did shoot better from three this year, it does seem like defenses are still more wanting to be like, hey, we're going to force you to make plays on offense in the half court, whether it's shooting or, or trying to handle the ball. And he's not perfect. He, he's not a guy who's going to go and go and exploit that. And that's tough to have, I think, on a team that wants for shot creation overall. Right. Absolutely. Like, I think I was going to get into this a little bit later, but I'll mention it here. Like Boston, if you looked, and this was one of my um, pre-series pieces was that they were using like even Tice in situations, they were completely helping into the paint off of that in the corner and, and deliberately funneling shots to him. They would have Al Horford up top. Like let's pretend, you know, Tyreek and Sabonis are in the pick and roll. Al Horford would be funneling the ball handler and then Tice would be coming in two nine and clear off of that. And then that's where the shot would go. And obviously like the, the wing defender isn't going to rotate off of Bogdanovich to go guard that. So he's either going to have to like, there's stuff that they can do to relieve some of that congestion, but You'd also like it to be a player that's going to confidently be able to knock down those shots. And Thad did. He improved a little bit this year over last year. I mean, he really fell off a cliff three-point shooting-wise after the All-Star break a year ago. But 
Yeah, and then, I mean, two, another thing is just the cross matches. I mean, I, I think they could maximize a lot more out of Miles Turner if they didn't have to worry about, oh, okay, a lot of times the bulkier defender of the front court would end up guarding Thad and sagging off of Thad, and then the more mobile defender would be guarding Miles out on the perimeter, and I think maybe you get more shot attempts for Miles if that doesn't happen. So, And I guess if, if you're going to pay Thad and you're saying if he's, let's say he wants to prioritize a long-term deal, which at his age I, I wouldn't blame him, th- th- then it becomes a matter of, okay, we're paying Turner, we just paid Thad, what happens to Sabonis there? That makes it messy. And this is something I had bullet pointed too. It does seem like Pacers Twitter, uh, Twitter is infatuated with Alizé Johnson. And so if you look at him, I'm not going to pretend to have watched a bunch of Mad Ants games this year because I watched exactly zero, but <laughs> I was surprised to see that he shot 38.3% on three attempts per game from there. And so if, if they view him as someone who could take minutes in that role and you already have Sabonis, it doesn't, I hesitate to call young expendable, but if he wants this multi-year contract, unless it's a situation where they can give him a, you know, he's willing to be that place role again and they're, they'll overpay him to kind of kick the can until 2020, he might be, I would say, appreciably more expendable than some of their other guys. Right, right. If it's a short term, I think maybe, yeah, you might look at that a little bit differently. With with Alize, I did watch. I did watch quite a few of the Mad Ants. I'm games. sure you did. I, I did not <laughs> top to watching any, not a single. Right, <laughs> and one of the things that kind of stood out, especially earlier on in the season, like he has these gaudy stat, stat lines, right? Like he has like 20 rebounds in a game. I don't know how many times this year. It's kind of ridiculous, but the Mad Ants ran like a lot of horns. Like a lot of what they ran offensively was horns. So if if Amari Johnson, who's a three point shooter, was playing at the five and like EK was with the Pacers then Alize would be the the player rolling to the basket and then he would a lot of times post up on the block and because he was such a threat at the G League level in a smaller league you would see a lot of teams when he would get that mismatch would be doubling him and so like the idea there is what's kind of interesting is like at what point are you kind of too good to develop like that might sound kind mm-hmm. of silly but like if he's drawing a double team his footwork still isn't completely polished down there in the post and not that the Pacers would be posting him a lot but I mean you see them do that with that and you'll see him do it with TJ Leaf too and you'd like to see him be able to work on those individual moves but at the G League level because those double teams were coming he was having to pass out of it a lot and his passing skills like he's good at finding the opposite corner out of a post like that that's there for sure that's that I think his passing is more developed than TJ Leafs at this point but his footwork and stuff and overall offense, I'm not sure, is as polished comparatively to TJ around the rim. I mean, you saw some stuff with TJ in the post or like going to the basket off a closeout where he could switch hands in the air and, you know, do some other things, finishing around the rim or what he did on. They're both comparatively on the offensive glass, though they're a little bit different. I mean, Alize is really going to attack and be kind of more the grittier re- rebounder and TJ kind of loops in from the perimeter and has a really quick second jump. They're, they're not the same player, but they have comparative skills. And sometimes at the G league level, he didn't get to iron out some of his rough spots because he was putting up the kinds of numbers that he was. I mean, a lot of his threes were wide open, which, you know, if he's like a fifth option off the bench, they probably would be, but the closeouts are going to be different at the NBA level than the they were at the G League level, but it was definitely good to see that number where it was. So, I mean, my guess is with the Pacers that they're hoping with Alizé is that he would be a person that could maybe compete with TJ Leaf for a similar role that TJ Leaf had this year. Gotcha. Do you That's see? Do you think, um, sort of shifting gears on the free agency front, do you see any of their? I'm assuming at least one will come up. Do you see any of the guards that are hitting the open market coming back? You have Collison. You have Corey Joseph. I, I mean, you could count, I guess we could count Wesley Matthews, but then there's Tyreek Evans. Do you see any of those guys 
uh, will the Pacers prioritize them? Yeah, that that's that's going to be interesting because definitely a shot creator overall, I think, needs to be their top priority. Like, I mean, I think national audiences got a small taste. Boston didn't switch a ton in that series, but they did switch. And the Pacers offense all year had so much. I mean, even when Victor was playing, like you go back and look at the game logs, look at their point totals against the Sixers, the Rockets. And and a lot of times when they played those teams, like this is no offense to the Rockets, but early in the year, their switching defense was not very good. And the Pacers were still struggling to get 100 points against this because they just have so many guys that are more spot up guys. And even when Victor was playing, they weren't getting a lot of points out of that they rank in like the bottom five in isolation scoring so I think they really need to find somebody who's going to be able to get into the teeth of the defense and create their own shots and I'm not sure that Darren and Corey necessarily fit that bill though they do have their own strengths so my guess is that they're going to prioritize finding one of those people first and if they kind of strike out then they might circle back and hope that it isn't too late to get one or the other of them but I kind of see Aaron Holiday as taking over as a reserve spot for one of them so I would Mm -hmm. be very surprised to see if both of them are back and so I guess it would be uh, a fair estimation to say that just looking for the Pacers to maximize their cap space is that they, if they technically renounced everyone but um, Bogey, they could still come pretty close to having max level room. And is that the the route that you think? Like you said, they can circle back with guys like Collison and Joseph because I don't think those are players that are going to be scooped up right away. But do you think is that the route that they look to explore? Where they they're just viewing kind of as you said before that hey, we have to keep Bogey, and then we're going to try and really make that that splash with the rest of the cap space. And we're, we're, li- we're willing to let, whether it's patients or actually renouncing their rights, we're willing to let some of the other guys become collateral damage of attempting to use that flexibility. Yeah. You know, I think some of it's really tough because you look at just like that shot creator, if that's what they want, like, what are your chances of like a Kemba Walker that, I mean, that's like the ideal person I would think like you can just see so much there with what they could do in terms of what I just said about their inability to create shots. Plus just when Oladipo gets back, like the idea in my mind of being able to have both of them on each slot and Kemba being able to attack and throw the ball behind the pick and roll action and take advantage of Oladipo's speed on the weak side to try to, you know, circumvent some of the trapping he was seeing like just that pairing makes a lot of sense but what is the chances that somebody like that first of all the Pacers as a whole aren't really a free agent destination but is Kemba going to be like oh yeah let me sign on to play with Victor when I don't know what state Victor is going to be in when he gets back like I'm not saying you should assume that Victor's going to lose all of his Mm -hmm. explosion but I mean Kemba doesn't know that so that yeah so ideally yeah that's what you'd want to do like maybe resign bogey and and get a guy like Kemba but even then you've pretty much gutted all your depth I mean you're really banking on the fact then that Aaron Holiday that Edmund Sumner that TJ Leaf are going to be ready to step in to some of those roles and you know maybe it's a sense of you need to get that shot creator but maybe the way that you're going to need to do that is to set yourself up with the right complementary pieces and depth this summer so that you can move Sabonis to try to get that person like, right. Uh, and I think one of the names that's come up too, and it kind has been a name that's mentioned uh, another, if, if we're focusing more, I guess on the bigger names has been D'Angelo Russell's been floated out there. And as Tony East, um, lo- locked on Pacers and 8.9 seconds pointed out to me that Indiana doesn't tend to go after restricted free agents. If they were willing to, do you see D'Angelo as a potential fit? Do you, 
I, I tend to fall on the lower end of the spectrum with him, and I'm just sort of wondering. I'd be scared to pay his next contract if it's anything. I know people have said max. I'm thinking anything within, you know, like twenty million a year. Uh, that even seems that that's where you get into really sort of iffy territory to me. Oh uh, yeah, I'm definitely weary about him and the idea of like Terry Rozier. Like if they if they swing and miss on like a Kemba or somebody, and they go after either one of them. Like the thing about Russell is his passing vision makes you see that like, oh, well, you know, you, he could have him run some more point. And like what I just said, you take advantage of Victor's speed on the weak side, but his overall shot selection, the inability to get in the paint, the, you know, the inability to get to the line makes me weary about that long-term money. Plus I'm just, I'm struggling to see that Brooklyn's going to let him walk. And the Pacers are kind of hesitant. I mean, what Tony said is true. They, they typically don't go play in the restricted free agent market but i mean the the sourcing last year did seem pretty solid on the fact that they were interested in giving aaron gordon an offer sheet even though it never got to that point so that that position might change they might pivot on that and i would almost i almost fall on the other end of the spectrum where i, I view d'angelo russell as gettable whether or not i would i don't know that i'd oh really the, right guy for the pacers i just don't think the nets look he had he had a hell of a season but it mm-hmm. was, and I'm not going to read, I'm not someone, I know playoffs are important. I'm not going to read too much into the playoffs. It was his first time being there. He didn't shoot well. Um, his shot selection isn't always great. He did hit a lot of um, those no man's land shots this year that a lot of teams don't really like to incorporate. It almost seemed like the Nets incorporated them just because they had to with him. I I'm, I just don't look at him as that $20 million a year near max guy. I think that player very clearly needs to be able to be the second best um, star player, whatever you want to call him, on a contender, and I don't know if he's if he's that guy. His vision, as you said, is just exceptional. I just don't with the inability to get to the foul line. I don't uh, his his pull up percentages as waxed waxed and waned. I'm I'm just very curious to see right. his long term ceiling as as a shot creator. Right. Yeah. I, I yeah. I would be weary about it. I, I even looked at some of the stuff on Rozier, and not that they're they're not really comparable players because I see Rozier more as like an off ball guard. But his his overall shot profile, his decision making, would make me iffy about his next contract as well. Have you seen aside from those guys, is there anyone that stood out to you as potential alternatives for them when they're going out in free agency and looking to fill this uh, shot initiation role? Well, you know, completely pivoting. I would I would almost completely pivot if I struck out on the on the players that actually I like I said like Akemba if you strike out which you most likely are going to I might actually start looking at a guy like Nikola Mirotic or Ooh. or Maxi Kleber you know try to do, play in the restricted free agent market there because of what I said before like you know that you need a shot creator as a role but maybe the way of you getting that type of high caliber player is through eventually having to move Sabonis as you know so if you look at Miritich, like some of the stuff I said about that earlier, like you're not, not going to be having those cross matches that you saw Boston doing. Like Aaron Baines is not going to be guarding Nikola Miritich, like the way that he was guarding Thad, and then they were using their more mobile defender to guard Miles Turner. Like I'm very interested to see. Like you saw this all year, where Miles Turner might start hot in a game against the Jazz. He'd hit like three or four jumpers. Rudy Gobert isn't coming out. Quinn Snyder you know takes a timeout they switch it and then miles isn't getting shots anymore like miles needs to take steps forward to diversify his overall offensive profile but just as him being a stretch five i think they would get more out of it if they had they weren't facing those cross matches all the time and you know if you look at 
Like I haven't looked extensively. This is just off my brief looking at sport tracks, free agents this morning <laughs> that like the Maxi Kleber there from Dallas. I don't think Dallas is going to be super interested in letting him go unless it's a ridiculous offer sheet. And if it's a ridiculous offer sheet, that's probably not something the Pacers should be signing. But like, if you look at that, you know, maybe he can play as like a stretch four with miles. And then if later on down the season, you're thinking, okay, we're ready, you know, this guy's available. We're ready to try to move Sabonis and what other pieces, draft picks to try to get our point guard of the future from somebody. Then maybe you can slide him into that backup five role that that Sabonis is using now. I mean, he has some rim protection. You're going to be missing everything that Sabonis has in terms of what he does, greasing the wheels of the offense with dribble handoffs. And that that's going to be a big miss. I mean, I looked at a stat earlier in the season, which I don't think it held clear to the end. I think Darren Collison ended up passing him, but Sabonis was the only player in the NBA leading his team in touches and under 25 minutes per game. And yet his like his conversion rate of how many shots he was taking on those touches ranked fairly low on the team. Like that's just how much his fingerprints were all over the offense. And some of that took a hit against the Celtics. Honestly, like I'll be interested to see how other teams view him and how the Pacers view him with what was going on with the way teams were doubling him and trying to force him to with the way Boston was trying to force him to go to his right and how they were overplaying dribble handoffs. Like a lot of those reversals that they run were kind of ending up DOA. Like they weren't getting a lot out of that, but you know, Maybe that's something that they have to look at is to pivot and try to answer their stretch four problem and kick the can a little bit and hope that maybe, you know, the NBA is constantly changing. Maybe a Drew Holiday becomes available later on if the Pelicans move Anthony Davis, and maybe that's something you look at. Yeah, therefore, well, so the first, the, the Cleveland name is really interesting, so I didn't even really think of that route. Uh, I would actually wonder if he would be another RFA who might be more gettable than normal just because if you're the... Uh, if you're the Mavericks, you have to worry about potentially maxing out KP. Uh, you have Dwight Powell has that player option. I saw somewhere that I think Mark Cuban said on the radio that they thought they were going to reach a three-year extension with him. And so if he opts out and you you know you sign him, re-sign him or whatever, I I would think that might make Kleba a little bit more gettable. I just with with Sabonis is is interesting though because uh, a guy like Holiday would be a nice fit for Indiana. I know a lot of people liked um, Conley too, and he's certainly going to be a name that's available over the summer. They might not even be. Even with Sabonis as a primary trade chip, they're not especially equipped, I guess, to pull off a deal like that. Just right. because now they they lack that salary matching fodder. Exactly, like that. That's that's definitely something that went away at the trade deadline, unless they're willing to, like you say, you make smaller moves this summer and you look to sign those types of deals. You look to sign, you know, one year, two year types of salary building deals to fill out the rest of your roster, and you're willing just to hope that something like that's going to come available. You know, you look at. I mean, you might even have to be throwing in Aaron Holiday, which I don't think that they're very interested in doing. And I mean, I don't know what the offers are going to look like. I mean, Mike Conley's a little bit different story because I think Victor's injury would moves the needle on that one for me. Because like, if, if Victor hadn't got hurt, and that was something that you could do at this season's deadline and really try to make a splash in the playoffs last year, maybe or this what just happened this postseason, maybe you do it, but. Like I'm just, I'd be concerned about his longevity and his contract matching up with when Victor's comes off the books, and that you're not going to have anywhere to go. Like the two of them alone is going to be over 30% of your cap in Victor's contract year. So I'm a little bit wary there. And so you actually just alluded to something I'd want wanted to ask you. Do you see Oladipo's injury or recovery impacting their offseason approach in general at all? Where it's 
if he follows a nine-month recovery, I think that's what it was pegged at. Uh, he would be ready uh, near the beginning of the season. Is it something where they just it, there's more urgency then to go out and get or, or just make splashes, or or might there be a, a temptation to follow a more conservative approach because you want to see what he actually looks looks like upon return, rather than maybe doubling down on a core that uh, you know he's young, and I know people said that the the quad injury wasn't career threatening, but you don't want to necessarily double down on a core either that ends up being uh, not as flashy as it as it was just a year ago. Right. You know, Kevin Pritchard faces a lot of tough decisions here in the next month, but um, I think in that case, like the Pacers already aren't a team that's going to bottom out. Like they're going to be a team that stays competitive. So if there's somebody out there that you really liked before Victor got hurt, I think that you still go after him if you can actually land them, which is a big if in this market anyways. If that person really wants to come to play for the Pacers, I think you probably do it anyways. I just think Mike Conley's just a little bit different because of the extensive injury history. And I kind of wonder how... I kind of wonder how much like Kevin Pritchard's experience in Portland with his core kind of being tethered to injuries there might impact how uh, risk averse or rather the reverse of that, how, how much risk he's willing to take with, with Victor now, like tethering him to that. But I, I think that if there's something out there that, that you really liked before Victor got hurt, you still do it. I mean, I, as far as like kicking the can on the, just re-signing all of the players from this year, I don't know how much I would be in favor of that simply because I thought that Boston kind of exposed a few things in that series that whether, I mean, it, it was obviously it was a very close series, but whether Victor played or not, like, I'm not sure that resolves how they were switching on to Bogdanovich coming off the wide pins. I don't, how they were scheming for Sabonis. Like you might, you're going to get more stuff from him in the clutch. I mean, he shot like over 60% on clutch plays, but they were, like I said, they were struggling against switching defenses from minute one to minute 48, even when Victor was playing. So if Boston was doing that in the playoffs, I expect that their offense was probably going to struggle. Even if Victor was playing, even if it didn't struggle quite to the degree that it did. And I guess, you know, I mentioned kicking the can like it would be nothing to do. But if you really, as you mentioned before, if you have uh, Thaddeus Young is 30, Collison's 31, Bogdanovich, you said, likes to stay in one place and is also 30. Those aren't necessarily guys who are at, I know players are signing shorter contracts overall, it seems, but they're not necessarily at the stage in their career, I guess, where they just want to be operating on these uh, one-year turnover style deals. Right. And that definitely benefited them the last two years because the Pacers kind of had that option. Like last year, you know, if, if we don't make, if we can't get somebody like Aaron Gordon, they didn't end up making that offer sheet. They tried to maximize their space by, you know, declining Lance's option and doing some other stuff there. And then that obviously took his, but they can kind of decide, Hey, we still have salary matching contracts and we'll keep the powder dry and look for next year. But, you know, if they can't find those types of things this year, they don't really have that option. Life can be stressful, but getting life insurance shouldn't be. That's why there's Ethos. Ethos is a modern kind of life insurance that's super fast, incredibly affordable, and very uncomplicated. At GetEthos.com, there are no medical exams for policies covering under a million dollars, no hours of paperwork, no meetings with pushy representatives. It only takes 10 minutes to apply, and you can rest assured knowing you've taken steps to protect your family And in most cases with Ethos, you can have that peace of mind for less than a cup of coffee a day with no hidden fees. Having life insurance can free you from stress. Getting life insurance shouldn't cause it. Discover how uncomplicated life insurance can be at Ethos. Get your free instant quote and submit 
your application in minutes. Just go to getethos.com. That's E-T-H-O-S. Getethos.com. Getethos.com. If I were, to, if if you had to put your Kevin Pritchard hat on, and I'm I'm just forcing you to make a decision, what would you lean towards with a Sabonis thing? Would you even consider signing him to an extension this summer, or are you in the camp of shop him, see what's out there, and if there's nothing there, you can always figure it out uh, in restricted free agency next summer? I mean, I'm I'm definitely listening to offers if I'm him, and I and this is, comes from somebody who really likes Sabonis's game. Like every, I think he's so smart. He he makes passes. Like the difference, the biggest difference I could point out between Miles and Sabonis, if I'm going to point out two things that that favor Sabonis, is that Sabonis passes people open, and Miles is getting better at finding the open player. That and then along with the fact that a lot of times Sabonis just knows where to stand better than Miles does, if that makes sense. Like on a spacing situation, that's what you'll see when the two of them are on the floor a lot. And some of it goes back to the fact that from the very beginning of the season, Nate McMillan was bearish on playing the combo together, basically said that if they're on the floor together, it's a means of getting Sabonis extra minutes because we want him to be on the floor more. Like we don't think it's a very good lineup for us. And that quite frankly, is what it looked like most of the year. Like they don't really run offense that's tailored for the two of them to be on the floor. So there really isn't that blueprint there. But at the same time, like Miles isn't great at knowing like role replace. Like if Sabonis is the roller, I'm going to replace so that that tagger has to decide which one of the two of us is going, he's going to guard or, you know, they don't run other sets like that. So I'm overall, I'm bearish on the long-term fit of it because unless it was, like I'll use this as an example. They played the Thunder when they came back and Wesley Matthews made that game winning put back shot. And first of all, the Thunder were on a back to back and it was the third game in four nights, which is important. But in the second half, they're using Steven Adams to guard Sabonis rather than having Steven Adams. I mean, they're having Steven Adams guard Miles Turner out on the perimeter rather than having him bang around with Sabonis. And Sabonis was just devouring Nerlens Noel and Jeremy Grant and I mean, Grant and whoever else that they were throwing at him. So that worked and they were a big plus that night, but a lot of teams do not guard them that way. And the very next night, the very next game in Denver, they were like minus 14 and the offense looked just as awkward as it normally does. And that is usually what it reverts back to. And that is what you saw. I mean, they were like, their net rating was absurdly bad in the playoffs. That's why I wrote about it when I did. It goes back to a spacing issue. And sometimes it's very frustrating because there was even a possession in that series against Boston where they're running like semi-transition offense for Darren. It's a double ball screen and they're setting it at the free throw line, like not staggered so that he can get any downhill momentum. And then because Aaron Baines is guarding Sabonis, Sabonis is popping because he's going to be the one that has the space. And like, it just... I don't know. I just don't see that as being a thing that's going to work in the long term unless they're definitely like, okay, we're going all in on this. We're going to start running offense that fits for both of these people. And even then when it breaks down and it's just reads, I'm not sure that that's something that they're going to be super successful with. So I, at the very least, I would be listening to it. I don't think you have to make a trade tomorrow, but I think that's where it's pointing to, because I just don't see that the type of offers that I suspect that Sabonis is going to command as a restricted free agent. I just don't think you can pay those two people that much money if they can't be on the floor together in a playoff situation or at the end of games and have it be a very successful thing for the Pacers. And I'm, I'm just guessing, judging off your thoughts, and I know the Pacers, like, to an extent, have made this de- decision by already extending Turner, but is that forced to choose between the two? Like, it's, it's you keep Turner, that's just become the clear-cut 
uh, decision now because I do feel like it was at least entering the year. I um, mean, even at the beginning of the year, it was still sort of a, a to- like a, a topic of debate. Yeah, I mean, I think some of what you saw, like in the playoffs, I mean, Sabonis did not average his double double against Boston, and he didn't get a lot of shot attempts against Boston. Neither did Miles. They both definitely have weaknesses. Like Miles' offensive profile, he he's putting the ball on the floor more when he gets closed out against. I mean, you saw that with the highlight dunk that he had over Gordon Hayward. That's kind of like actualized Miles where somebody closes out on him and he's willing to aggressively put the ball on the floor and attack. Like that, that was come and go, but it was more go this year than it was a year ago. His post game is still fairly iffy most of the time, though I think he's willing to kind of get down there and get in position. They don't really have guards that are great at throwing post entry passes. But yeah, I mean, this this year fact of what Miles is going to bring on the defensive end gives him an edge over Sabonis because he, so Miles's closing speed and what he's grown on that end probably didn't get enough attention as it as it should have of terms of what he's doing. He's balancing a lot better, sticking with the ball handler, recovering to the roller, what he does blocking shots, and then he just did a lot better tracking and staying with where he was supposed to be within the defensive system than he did a year ago. So I suspect that they would lean Miles, even though there's there's definitely things that Sabonis has his strengths over Miles, but Miles is the more complete player on both ends. He definitely, I, I don't know if you went through and did like just mock all defense picks, but I, I think Turner... Uh, I don't think I know he made my personal second team and he was kind of on the fringes of the, the defensive player of the year discussion. So I do think he was that good on, on that end of the floor this year. There's a few things that I think like I know that he he was really taking offense at some of it towards the end of the year. But I mean, if you look at Gobert and Bead, I think Gobert defends two two players at once stronger than Miles does, though he's made strengths like Miles has made strengths in that or strides in that regard. My bad. Um, but there were games where I'm not sure how much of the national audience would have caught onto this unless you were watching like every game. Like I'll take an instance against Minnesota, like Carl Anthony Towns is just kind of treating him like tissue paper. So is Embiid. He can't, he's not guarding, doesn't quite have the strength to be an imposing low post defender quite yet. And those are things that he was passing off to Thad. Like Thad would have to take those responsibilities. So there's still some holes in his defense that he's going to have to shore up, but he definitely made year over year improvement on that end of the floor. I think too, for a big, uh, but you watched way more of him than I did, obviously, so you could speak to whether it's correct. He's, he seems like he's getting better than most at contesting shots on the perimeter from maybe suboptimal positions where he's closing out, where, or it almost looks like in general, where now he's reached the point where he's more comfortable um, defending outside the paint than, than even a Joel Embiid is. Right. I mean, that, that, I mean, he, had like a game winning block shot out on the outside whenever they were in Chicago. So yeah, I mean, my favorite block, people probably are going to disagree with me, but my favorite block of his that he had the entire season, they were in Phoenix. Devin Booker has it in the deep corner. He's going to attack Miles off the dribble. Miles sticks with him, tracks him all the way, and Devin Booker's going to do a reverse layup under the rim to use the rim as like a shield, and Miles still gets that block. Like that's him tracking a guard all the way back to the basket and still being able to block the shot and keep it in play. And I think they got a transition basket out of that. So that that's just a little taste of how much like he was documenting all that stuff he was doing with yoga to try to improve how fluid he could move on the court. And you, that's one of the best examples that I can give you of how much better he was in that regard. Yeah, and I, I looked this up while you were talking. He had, this is per pbpstats.com, he averaged almost 0.9 blocks 
on short mid-range attempts per 36 minutes. And if you compare that to Embiid, uh, he was just under point point five. So that's yeah. that's interesting. It's if you do get rid of Sabonis though, and even maybe it's not even next season. Maybe they they follow this through. Who knows? But if they move him or if they let him lose him in restricted free agency, you do do you kind of reach the point where then you have to start looking at ex- forcing Miles uh, to do more on the offensive end or or expanding his role. He's not the guy like you said before that you want to run the offense through with the post. But there's and I know Sabonis isn't necessarily this volume shooter, but there there's going to be slack to pick up if you lose what is. Sabonis has to be what? Is he the best passer on the Pacers? The second best passer on the Pacers? So oh, if yeah. If you're going to lose that playmaking, it, there's going to need to be slack picked up elsewhere. I'm not saying that Turner needs to become that type of playmaker, but if you are going to choose between the two of them, it does feel like they'd be banking on finally giving or forcing Turner into this role expansion on offense. Right. I mean, they, yeah, they'd have to, they'd about have to. I mean, even in Boston with what I said in that series, I think I'm pretty sure that Sabonis either tied Darren or was right there in assists per game over those four games. And that was even with like, like I said, I don't know how many of those dribble handoffs to like Bogey or McDermott or whoever it might have been just completely died right on the vine. Like, and that's even with that. And, but yeah, with Miles, you're really going to have to hope for a little bit more development on that end of the game. I mean, are on that end of the floor. To his credit, he got better setting more intuitive screens. And he is, from from his first season, I use that comparison, he is finding the open player, keeping his head on a swivel out of the pick and roll better than he was a year ago. It isn't to the extent of what you're going to get from Sabonis. But one thing that's interesting with that dynamic is how much is Sabonis's presence kind of serving as a build-in motivator for miles right now, like the last two years, I mean, definitely into this season, it, it's been a neck and neck race. I mean, that's something that people debate widely is which one of the two of them should the Pacers invest in, which one should they keep long-term? And, you know, miles has to know that in the back of his head. So how much with that, along with his contract extension, does that serve as a motivator for him to improve? And, you know, just being around Sabonis and seeing the ways that he finds spots in, in the offense finds, you know, gaps in the defense to find players cutting or whatever it may be like that has to be helpful and if he isn't there anymore is that motivation gone is the example of you know seeing that every day in practice and on the floor gone like I I don't know how much you can expect I mean it's been like three years and we're still hoping that Miles would have had a little bit more of a impact in the playoffs than he did last this year I mean he didn't even get 10 shots a game yeah, that's low. And it's for someone who shot 38.8% from deep this year, this is, I don't want to oversimplify it, but it'd be nice to see him. And this is a, I think this is a problem roster wide with the Pacers on three point volume, but it'd be nice to see him take more than about 3.3 attempts per 36 minutes if he's going to shoot that accurately. Right. And that's, that's a product of two things. Sometimes they'll be running the pick and roll and they run it tight and he just doesn't get his feet set behind the three point line. Like he, he just, steps inside and takes a long two and that's something that he needs to work on other times they just they just they'll go away from him and I think that some of that like sometimes I want to be like come on Nate you gotta feed you gotta feed him against some of these some of this drop coverage sometimes like if you're playing Vucevic down in Orlando like obviously he should be somebody that you're looking for but I think part of the reason why Nate McMillan was kind of even steady you know reluctant to feed him a lot was because teams would start, they would either, like I said earlier with Rudy Gobert, they would either come out of a timeout and cross match it and make it very hard for Miles to even get those types of shots. 
or they would start switching. And as soon as the teams would start switching, their offense would bog down, would just completely bog down. Like I'll take, I'll use another example. They were playing the Bucks. They had a 10 point lead in the fourth quarter. And you can kind of quibble about some of the rotations that they had out on the floor, but literally the Bucks decided that they were going to switch, which I barely ever see the, the Milwaukee Bucks switch everything, but they're switching everything with Brooke Lopez, Ersan Ilyasova and Chris Middleton and the Pacers surrendered an entire 10 point lead. And they, they like connected on, I think two shots the rest of the way. Like that's just how bad the offense got. So sometimes I think that miles are that Nate McMillan might've been a little reluctant to go there a lot because if miles got really hot, then the teams were going to make an adjustment and the adjustment they were going to make is something that they weren't really equipped to deal with without an isolation score that was going to, you know, and that goes hand in hand. They could have done, they could have ran more stuff and more run more sets, whether it's like, you know, horns dive play screening their own man, just slipping, which is another thing that miles needs to become more natural. He doesn't slip into space very well. Like the last time I looked on synergy, I think he was like slipping on 4% of his pick and roll possessions, which is kind of ridiculous. But I think that they didn't always feed him the ball a lot because of what was, what was at the end of the tunnel. If they did, they weren't going to be very good at combating those switches. So, you know, next year, maybe if they have different pieces around miles and like what we said, if, 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 if the opponent isn't looking to cross match that and they have better shot creators so that teams aren't going to be so willing to go to switches unless they're a team that naturally does switch, then I think you'll see Miles getting more shots. Um, and this was something I bullied too. I, I think one of the knocks, or maybe the main knock against their offense is doesn't shoot enough threes. They were 29th in three-point attempt rate. Doesn't get to the three throw, free throw line enough. 23rd in free throw attempt rate. And I think they were 26th in that after... Victor Oladipo went down. I know this is largely personnel decision dependent, but do you see, if you had to guess between which one we'll see more improvement from next year, which would it be or which might they just have more control over uh, to improve next year? Or do you not really see there being an improvement where maybe their their shot profile um, won't change enough on the offensive end to generate more free throw attempts or just to incorporate more three-pointers? Right. So yeah, so a lot of that will depend on how they fill out the rest of the roster. But if you look at it, since since Nate McMillan took over, they've been in the bottom five of three-point attempts per 100 each of the last three seasons. And I was talking to this to somebody about this the other day. And like in the first season, if you look at their roster, like they have Monte Ellis, Rodney Stuckey, like Al Jefferson. That was a team. Yes, this was a team. LaVoy Allen, Kevin Serafin, like these are not people, Thad, that, these are not people that are going to handle high volume three-point shooting teams, but yet they finished in the top five of three-point percentage. So you got to look at that and say, okay, a lot of that's because of Nate McMillan's strategy that they're going to value quality three-pointers over the quantity of three-pointers because like that roster is just not going to handle high volume three-point shooting. But here this year, I think that they could have handled more threes than what they took. I mean, they signed Doug McDermott to space the floor and there was way too many games where he didn't even get two shots from three. Um, Miles could handle taking more barring some of the defensive strategies that I just talked about, you know, Boyan Bogdanovich probably could have taken more. I mean, Victor was averaging, I think like six before he went down. So, you know, I'm not sure if that strategy, that seems to be what Nate McMillan values is that they're going to take high quality threes and hope that they hit those at a decent clip and they're just going to value open shots. So I'm not sure if it changes, but if I have to pick one, like I would like to think that in year two that they're going to be a little bit better at finding Doug McDermott than they were <laughs> this year. I would like to hope that. And then, you know, you look at Victor and if you're coming off a quad injury, I think the tendency usually is that you're going to be a little bit more willing to shoot threes while you ease your way in than you Good are going to maybe be attacking. 
So I could see him taking similar to what he was doing last year, maybe even, you know, a little, a little bit more than that. And then if, if they sign somebody else to pair with Victor, I could see that Boyan Bogdanovich is going to be off ball more rather than, you know, he really expanded how multi-dimensional he was as a scorer. It didn't really show up against Boston because the switching did bother him. Like he isn't an isolation threat, but just what he could do off a wide pin down was really impressive. He could create space for himself in the mid range. He could attack and use his shoulder to, you know, leverage space and get around bigs at the rim. And he even had a little bit of a change of speed that he started showing off at the end of the, the game. But if, if you're using him more off ball, he's probably going to get more three-point attempts. So I would lean towards, even if it isn't a huge increase, that they would probably take more threes next year than I would guess that the free throw rate increased. But the, the free throw thing was kind of crazy this year because they didn't take a lot and they weren't really good at knocking them down either. Like from the beginning, it was kind of like you'd see games where they might miss like 15 free throws in a game. And it was almost like kids on a bus. Like once <laughs> one kid throws up, like the whole bus is going to throw up. Like as soon as one of them started missing free throws in a game, they would all start missing free throws. So I don't really, I can't really explain to you why so many of them had dramatic decreases in free throw percentage throughout the season, but yet it happened. And it probably, I guess it would help if they're going to have Aaron Holiday play more minutes next year. He's at least someone on the team who certainly does not seem shy about getting his shots off from deep. Right, right. He's definitely going to, I would guess that he would take a higher volume of threes than, than Corey Joseph did in the comparable role. I mean, Corey's shot really fell off a cliff towards the end of the season. Yeah, Wolf. Yeah, like, I mean, he had like eight straight games where I think he didn't make a three, and that isn't even taking into account his overall field goal percentage toward, towards the back half, which that happened last year too, but it was a little bit more dramatic this year with taking on a larger role. Like, I don't know if he just got worn down from having played in every game and filling all of those roles while they dealt with injuries or what exactly happened there, but. And I guess now that I'm kind of thinking about it, it would be the, the free throw stuff is is probably a lot more personnel dependent than uh, the three point stuff, just because okay, you could, you know if Miles starts slipping more screens, maybe that helps with them generating more free throw attempts. But if you don't have, you need to go out and get someone. It's not as easy as just telling people to attack the basket. You need that extra shot creator, someone who's comfortable doing that. And I think they had hoped that Tyreek Evans right. was going to be that guy. And so that that probably more than anything is it's a lot easier to say up your three point volume, particularly when you shot the ball as well as the Pacers did. They were, I think they shot over 43% on corner threes this year or something ridiculous. So right, right. that might just be easier for them to improve. Right. I mean, and like the back half of this year, you're not going to be like, oh, we want Wesley Matthews to be attacking off a ball screen towards the rim. Like that's not going to be a competitive possession for you compared to trying to get in more three-point attempts. But yeah, the miles slipping thing that, I mean, you even look at the back end of that. I think it was game two where they started isolating bogey inexplicably to close out the game. It's like some of those possessions, they're setting ball screens clear out at the logo, like zipper into a high ball screen with miles. And it's like, if miles would have just slipped some of those, like to relieve some of that congestion, like you're hoping that bogey can make that pass. And what, what rotations that would have forced, like miles just isn't natural doing that yet. And I don't know if that's going to, I mean, it hasn't come over his first X seasons, but maybe, maybe next year he gets a little bit more comfortable in that regard. And I'll I'll wrap it up. I'll let you go with this. What does your so considering all of this? What does your ideal yet realistic off season just look like for the Pacers? In in a nutshell, right? So I I, I tossed and turned with this one. I hope you know. Like I toiled Their over team this. It's just so hard, and I'm doing this from a distance. So if it's difficult for you and you're so close, I just 
there's so many tough decisions that they have to make. It's it's honestly where it was last year. As you said, they had this ability to um, – they had a backup plan because they had team options on all of these guys. And now with everyone actually up for new contracts, it just – it all gets so complicated. Right. So, like, I, obviously, number one is you'd want it to be. You would want to get Kemba if you can get Kemba. And you would want to hopefully be able to re-sign Bogey and just hope that you're going to be able to fill the gaps with the rest of – some of the young guys that you have on the roster and maybe you get lucky with some veteran minimum deals, but I don't really see that as plausible. So I think that the thing that I said earlier, like if that and does indeed does want a multi-year deal that you address that stretch four position, try to fix that problem and hope that it's a guy that you can get on a reasonable contract while also re-signing Bogdanovich. And then, you know, you split your money out between one of Darren or Corey hope that Aaron holiday can play the backup point guard role, or maybe, you know, he even gets better along the way. And maybe you can use one of their contracts as something to, as a salary, you know, building or matching deal. And then eventually you look at moving Sabonis to address your point guard situation and hope that a deal, you know, the NBA is always changing. Hope that something comes up. I, I think that's their best bet. Because I just don't think that with Victor Hurt that they're going to attract a top-tier free agent. Like, obviously, agents are going to know the market. Kevin Pritchard knows what that market is better than I do. But I, I think that's what they're going to have to hope for. The Oladipo injury is, I mean, it's it sucks for many reasons. But it's annoying because when you looked at, if free agents, when you were looking at the teams that are going to have cap space this year, if there were names, and I, I do think Kemba Walker could be one of them, of the bigger names where might consider actual basketball fit over just the entire picture. Utah and Indiana were the two teams that I kept coming back to. And I, mm-hmm. like you said, with Victor Oladipo injured, and we can assume he'll be fine after he'll come back from right. from his injury, but it does sort of harsh their free agency pitch. And I was I was really pulling, and still am, for them or the Jazz. Just I want I want a free agent to be like, screw all like this, you know, the, the normal free agent destinations. I'm going... I'm going where there's the best basketball fit. And I want to see what ensues on NBA Twitter after that, because I think everyone would absolutely love something like that. Right. Um, But Caitlin, thank you so much for being so generous with your, with your time. Uh, It was fun to go deep on the Pacers. I'll definitely be bothering you. I'm sure again, over the off season, um, when we actually can look at the Pacers roster and and not half of it is uh, not under contract. Um, if you want to follow Caitlin, and you should definitely want to follow her, uh, she can be found at C2 underscore Cooper. Look for her work at Indie Cornrows. It is absolutely spectacular. Uh, good with the small picture stuff, possession by possession breakdowns, and her big picture uh, breakdowns are absolutely fantastic too. So again, be sure to check her out at Indie Cornrows. If you want to follow me, I'm at Dan Favalli. Please remember to follow at Hardwood Knox. And until next time, I leave everyone with a shout out to Kyle Anderson. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.